Pushkin. recognize who that is? That's one of the most distinctive voices in modern music, Roseanne Cash, country music royalty. She's been making extraordinary music for 40 years, and that's the beginning of the title track to her latest album, She Remembers Everything. You know, I recently looked back at some country music charts. 30 years ago, the average age of the artist in the top 10 was 35. Today, it's 28. Country music is losing interest in its elders, which is a shame because its elders are better than ever. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Broken Record. This week, my colleague Bruce Headlam sits down with Roseanne Cash and her husband and musical partner John Leventhal at the Bridge Studio in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, to play some amazing music and tell a few stories. The name of the album uh, is She Remembers Everything, which uh, it's it's an ambiguous, difficult song. Um, the phrase on its own seems to have taken a lot, a lot of meaning right now. Um, did, how did you intend that to be received? I intended it as both a threat and a come on. And I, I, I wrote the lyrics to this song and Sam Phillips, who is just a beautiful woman and a beautiful songwriter. She wrote the music. It was the first time we ever wrote a song together. And I was... When I wrote the lyrics, I was thinking about trauma, early trauma, and a woman's memory, and how many things we lock up, and that it there's some comfort in thinking that it was a woman's memory is like a library. You may not know right off the bat every book that's on the shelf, but you could go in there and pull it out, and. There's also some rage in that song. In a way, it's prescient because this was before the Me Too movement, before the Kavanaugh hearings, you know, when every woman I know felt completely crushed and discounted. And, you know, we were told that we couldn't even trust our own memories. And the song actually took on greater resonance for me after that. It's striking how it did. Yeah. And we both, I remember the day we both realized it, like we just looked at each other and go, you you have just entered the zeitgeist at the exact right moment. Mm-hmm. 
but it was personal and it's not like all those things didn't exist before for millions of women you know mm-hmm. those um was that the kind of trauma you were talking about assault mm. let's say i have my own stories and i don't feel the specifics are as important as the fact that the story is believed and valued just like every other woman i know who has these stories and the trauma i think childhood trauma any trauma it rearranges you in a way that you start acting in the world differently and i started thinking how long does it take to get out of that how long does it take to become yourself you know in your sixth decade, are you still working on this? Are you still crawling out from it? Are you still walking through the world like a thief, trying to steal a little moment of joy or, you know, some attention for yourself? Uh, do you have an answer for that? No. Because I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the answer. Okay. That. And in fact, I like that songs don't provide answers. They just provoke questions. Mm-hmm. Did it, Did the feeling you're talking about, um, did that um, precede the Kavanaugh hearings? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, yeah. Mean, I, I mean, the expression of that politically, did that go back to the election? Oh, my God, yes. I didn't stop crying for 10 days after the election, and I have four daughters and a son. Mm-hmm. And my daughters were devastated, and one of them said to me, she called up crying the night of the election, and she said, I feel like I don't matter. And that pierced my heart. Mm-hmm. Whenever I think of that sentence, I just it breaks my heart. And at the same, or at the same time, our son was writing his um, college, filling out his essay for college, and one of the questions was, what would you change in this world if you could change one thing? And he wrote sexism. Mm. I, that just came out of the blue. We didn't expect that. He said, uh, because I have a mom and four sisters, and I see how it hurts them. Well, those are the people we hope rule the world, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> young men who are that sensitive. Uh, or young women. Or young women, of course. Right. Uh, growing up, there were albums, and I know you like these artists, who, who looked at albums that way, like Joni Mitchell yeah. or, or Linda Ronstadt. But they've thought very much in terms of albums. Do you think still in terms of albums, oh, even yeah. in this age? Oh, yeah. And the time and um, you know focus that we spend on sequencing an album, because it it is an album to us, you know? It's like, what is track three? How are we going to start it? How are we going to end it? And even if there's not a theme, there, there is a melodic or a narrative arc to it that makes sense. I'm actually not very good at sequencing. John is much better. And Tucker Martin, who is the other producer on this album, half the album was produced by him, half by John. He um, He's also good at sequencing. So I kind of left that to the, to the gentleman. But you're right, Joni Mitchell, that uh, Blue was a really, really important record to me. Up to that point, uh, I mean, I was young, but up to that point, I kind of just thought men were songwriters. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that a woman could be a songwriter and that her inner life was legitimate, raw material to create songs, music, art, and put it out in a public forum. That was 
that was a startling and revelatory moment for me. Then we'll get to the other songs in a minute, but are all the songs confessional in that way? Are they all parts of you? I don't like that word confessional because it makes it seem um, like a diary. And there is an, an art and a craft to songwriting and poetic license and a rhyme scheme and a melody and a backbeat and all of those things to have to work together to make a song work. At the same time, yeah, there's nothing outside of myself on this album, not nothing. It's also, and I regret using the word, it's a word that's used with women's music. Absolutely. You don't hear about men's confessional albums. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, that's because we have nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's so not true. Yeah. Well, uh, with that, why don't we try another song? Sure. What's next? Try being the operative word. We'll see how not it goes. <laughs> Um, which one are we doing? Uh, let's do uh, let's do Jerusalem. But I need uh, you just hold the hold the binary code in there for a second. I gotta retune. Hands we didn't play, and 
We're crossing to Jerusalem with nothing but our love. We'll be crossing to Jerusalem with nothing but our love. More Broken Record after this. Hey there, I'm Ashley Ford, host of the Chronicles of Now podcast. Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfield to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change and extinction? And perhaps most mysteriously, what is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The show is great for fans of short speculative fiction, historical novels, podcasts that go behind the news, and narrative shows like Radiolab and The Moth. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Authors helping us understand our world. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. We're back with Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal. Uh, You talked uh, when you were a young writer, I'm not quite sure what you were doing, about sitting down and taking apart songs by Mm. your heroes, Guy Clark and Town Van Zand and uh, I'm assuming Joni Mitchell and others. Mm-hmm. Is that something you still do, even all after all this time? I guess what I'm asking is: is songwriting like learning the alphabet or riding a bike? Once you know it, you know it. Or is it like playing a guitar? You got to do your scales. Oh God, no! Once you know it, you don't know it. I mean, part of the beauty and of songwriting is there's mystery involved, you know, the same with any other really creative act. You start out not knowing what's going to happen and then it starts to unfold and then you can see the end of it and then you edit and then you just keep polishing and, you know, it's, it's different every time. As far as examining other songs, absolutely. When I was really young and first uh, starting out, I would write the lyrics down a Bob Dylan song, Joni Mitchell song, um, Guy Clark song, and try to figure out why it worked and deconstruct the rhyme scheme. Where did they rhyme this one and how did that work and where did the bridge come and why does the chorus work, you know, and really try to dismantle it. I don't do that so much anymore because I think some of that knowledge is just intuitively gone in after 40 years of writing songs. But I do um, pay attention and listen to how other writers um, create things and how they construct their songs. And, you know, like a song that has a really subtle rhyme scheme and yet works, and how how did that happen? And chord changes, um, you know, 
all of it. It still is fa- endlessly fascinating and wonderful and mysterious to me. If if you hit a roadblock in your own writing, is that something you'll go back and listen to other things? Just oh, to- sure. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, even I listen to other music and get inspired to, you know, sometimes my competitive spirit gets inspired. Like, I really want to write something that good. I want to beat that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then... It pisses you off a little bit. Yeah, it kind of yeah. makes you mad. And mm-hmm. then other times it's just like, oh, I'm so moved. I want to find that thing in me. Mm-hmm. And then beat that person. Um, is songwriting something you do uh for both you every day is it is it i you know what i the way i look at it i don't sit down and write every day but i am a songwriter every day so i'm collating information and keeping notes every day Mm -hmm. and seeing something form just outside my peripheral vision every day Mm -hmm. i try to be aware of it every day yeah i mean I'm a little weird. Like I am compelled to write music in a way I can't turn it off, um, you know, which is great. So a few times where I wish I could turn it off. Mm-hmm. I can't turn off that thing in my head that wants to create or come up with something that I that I feel is potentially interesting. It doesn't always turn out to be interesting, but like you saw me here today, like before we even started, like I played something on the guitar that struck me as unusual. And the first thing I thought of was like, oh, I could write a song around that. I keep uh, old lyrics, you know. I have files and files of old lyrics. And sometimes if I get stuck, I go back to something I wrote 10 years ago, five years ago. Sometimes she'll show me or I'll find a bit of lyric that she hadn't really thought about as being either worthwhile or a song. And I'll just look at it and go, oh, my God, let me. can I please write music to this? It's... Uh, there's, I think the song we're about to do is sort yeah, of a this song, of that. Yeah. Everyone But Me, I, I had written these lyrics that I didn't think were lyrics. I just thought it was something I was writing for myself because it was kind of an anguished piece. And I thought, I'm not going to turn this into a song. And then John and I were in the studio one day and we were writing, I think we were working on Crossing to Jerusalem. And... Uh, he said, what else you got? And just impulsively. <laughs> and you said, well, I know who's crossing to Jerusalem yeah, yeah. first. <laughs> yeah. Well, that possibility always exists in a marriage, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I pulled these, this raw thing out and I said, I just don't really think these are lyrics. And he goes, oh yeah, let me write music to this. And I swear, I think it was the first time we both cried in the studio. Oh, geez, here we go. No, really. I no, mean, it why, is that's true. That's not we embarrassing. Both okay, well, take me back. What? Right. H- how did that happen? He wrote the music to those raw kind of lyrics, and we both had tears running down our face. It was very moving. It was a great experience. But I didn't... Ex- what's interesting is that, I mean, I, I really loved Rosanne's lyrics, and I was uh, I felt good about the melody I wrote. Um because I get older, I feel like I've accomplished something if I've written something really simple but has a kind of elegance to it that's not beholden to any particular style of music. But I didn't, I experienced Roseanne's lyrics, I think, differently than she did. So the song was saying something different to me than I think what she, quote unquote, intended when she wrote it, which to me is my favorite kind of song in yeah. lyric writing, where 
Roseanne may have had some narrative or some idea or thought about where she was going with this lyric, but to me it represented something so much more universal than what I think she was writing about, um, about a general idea of loss and um, I don't want to get all modern again, about it, but, but again, trauma coming out of yeah. See, I didn't hear it as trauma. Yeah. I, I heard it more as this kind of universal sense that at some point you're going to lose something that you love. Well, it's unavoidable. Hopefully, it is universal. And how you navigate it, and how you express it, and what you feel about it, and what you do with it is is universal. And particularly as you get older, it's like you know, mortality yeah. looms in some places on this album. <laughs> Well, with that, let's hear it. Okay, this is called Everyone But Me. Still it seems 
I mean, there's a lot, that's a loaded song. There's a lot in it. Um, it does talk about parents. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, people think, of course, you were raised in Tennessee, that you were raised in the South. Um, if they're surprised to find you weren't. They might be surprised to find out you were raised Catholic. Yeah. My mother was Catholic. And, you know, I was born in Memphis. We moved to... Um, Southern California when I was three and I was raised in Southern California and my mom was a devout Catholic. In fact, my dad had to sign papers when they got married saying that the children would be raised Catholic. And I went to convent school for 12 years and grew up in California listening to rock and roll. Um, but like all good Catholics, you left the church, left the church. <laughs> uh, but your mother was now was she from she was from san antonio san antonio mm -hmm. uh but southern catholicism is a is a kind of whole different thing isn't it well she her family was italian mm -hmm. um her father uh i mean her father was only a second generation italian or first generation second. well they were southern italian so yeah so, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was italian so i mean my mom had a uncle who was a priest it was pretty serious right yeah oh but, no it's very serious yeah but it's uh it's a, uh, it's almost like uh, being a catholic in england which is yeah you're this kind of, you're this real minority uh yeah that's true um i left the church at 16 broke my mother's heart it just you know she thought i was going to hell mm -hmm. <laughs> i just found yet, yet it, to be determined yet to be determined tbd I found it immensely um, cruel and cynical that my mother, who was such a devout Catholic, was for all intents and purposes excommunicated when she divorced my dad and not allowed to receive communion anymore. And she still showed up and sat in the front row every mass, you know, and worked in the church and everything and i just thought how could they um turn away somebody who was so devoted mm -hmm. i don't want to be part of that well there is there is a kind of sense in a lot of your work i would argue that uh you've got that catholic particularly that kind of catholic um sense of in, in a lot of your songs of this kind of fight between the world we believe in and then there's the world we live in. And you tend to look at it, I would say, probably in, our, in, in terms of relationships, but it's a very, it's something you find particularly in a lot of Southern Catholic literature. Flannery O'Connor is a great example of that. That is so interesting. I never thought about it that way. And I, I think that's true. And I think on this record, it's less about that happening in relationships and more about it happening inside myself. And, you know, there's still a good Catholic girl inside of me who wants people to like her and wants to do the right thing and believes in 
good and evil and morality. It's a, it just seems to be a theme that kind of runs mm -hmm. through and particularly your views on, on marriage and relationships. You know, some of these, uh, I think two of the songs are, are dedicated to your husband, mm -hmm. um, but they're not simple, easy songs. No. Well, you Considering know. Considering what a, easygoing guy he seems to be yeah right well and when you does know, he get here anyway yeah when does he get here <laughs> yeah. marriage is complicated it requires work it's not it's not something you're given you have to work for it and you know we've had work 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 we've work, had work. ups and downs <laughs> like any couple and you know there's some days i've wanted to get as far away from him as possible but mostly i mean we really like being together. We've, we're together mm -hmm. more than any couple we know. Mm -hmm. And we're really good friends. And we work together, raise a child together, live together, travel together. And it's not modern. I mean, I think a lot of modern relationships, they, people spend a lot of time apart. We don't. And we like it that way. Mm -hmm. Although both your parents ended up having relationships like that, didn't they? Yeah, where they were very close to the, and with the mm -hmm. other person all the time. That's true. They did. Um, oh, your dad and June had ways of, yeah, sort of being apart as well. Yeah, they complicated. Mm -hmm. You're now at an age uh, when, when your father was a performer, when he was around your age, he was going through a lot of struggles mm -hmm. commercially. I think at one point he was he dropped by his label that was then your label, or yeah, that was just a dark time. He uh, called. Can, can you he, tell me how, how that happened? He called me. He was on Columbia and. Really, Columbia, that record label was built on the backs of him and Bob Dylan. You know, it was that that record label owed him so much. So he called me at home one day and he said, what's your royalty rate? Because I was on Columbia at the same time. And I told him and he kind of harumphed. And... Then shortly thereafter, the label dropped him. And I was furious and I hated them for doing that. And I felt so bad for my dad. And I felt embarrassed about myself that I was still on the label. It seemed somehow disrespectful, even though I didn't have anything to do with it. it you know, looking back on it, I thought, I think I should have, I should have left the label should have just gotten off at that moment but i didn't and then dad went to mercury and you know then he had a real fallow period before he met rick and rick came in like a spirit brother and my whole family i think owes him a huge debt for what he did for dad i mean he it was such a redemptive act we should mention you're talking about Rick Rubin. Yeah, who's, Rick Rubin. Sorry, who's uh, one of the partners in this podcast. Yeah, and produced, um, I think, all your father's last five albums, the American recordings. Yeah, um, which are, of course, sort of landmarks. Yeah, I always thought of Dad like Matisse. You know, like Matisse starting with representational art and going into impressionistic, and then this burst of creativity at the end of his life, you know, when he did the jazz dancers. It's mm -hmm. like he kept reinventing himself. And I think he that fallow period on Mercury when he did all that kind of really, um, some really shallow and pedestrian recordings, 
then he just burst open when Rick came on the scene. Well, Rick gave him permission to be the artist he he really was and not sort of a musical artist plugged into some sort of song slash hit making Nashville machinery, which at that point was just a very bad fit for your father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean. He needed someone to say. You're an artist. You're Johnny Cash. Yeah. yeah. What are you doing? You're Johnny Cash. Um, Let go of all of this. Let's just sit you down with the guitar, just you and the guitar, and let's get back to the basics. Well, let me ask you then, now at this point in your career, first of all, when you looked ahead 20 years ago, where did you think your career was going to be? I'm not good at that. I've never been good at five-year plans or mapping out my future or anything like that. I'm really more of a what's next, what's the next step, what's the next step person. Um, the overarching looking forward vision I've had for myself is just to be a better writer. I just wanted to be a better songwriter and mm-hmm. I want to be a better singer. I don't think and, either of us have ever thought about our careers. Yeah, like, I, 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 we just don't think like that. I mean, I've know? had to learn to think about some of that, you know, as the business has changed, you know, trying to adapt to that. But mostly I just want to write songs and be a better singer and be a better songwriter. And do good work. And do good work. Mm-hmm. The work for the work's sake. Absolutely. And the fact that I'm not burnt out at my age when I know so many people who are, I just feel so lucky and um, I feel like I'm, I'm still learning and getting better, and what more could you want? Well, you actually are getting better, and I'm not just saying that because you're standing four feet from me. Um, the people I know who've heard the record uh, have said, wow, she's actually getting better, and that's uh, that's difficult for any artist. It's difficult for songwriters. Um, not many songwriters keep getting better. Is there... Leonard Cohen did. Leonard Cohen did, yeah. Is there a is there a, a magic, a musical fountain of well, I shouldn't even call it a fountain of youth, because that's not what it is. You know fountain what fountain of age? You know what? Um there's for me, um to avoid getting bitter is huge. Um because you know, bad things happen to you. Suffering, we all suffer, we all have losses, we all have um, missed opportunities and I know people who've allowed themselves to become bitter and it really shuts you down it shuts down your access points to art and creativity in my mind from what I understand and the other thing is to stay curious I'm really still very curious I feel like a beginner um, and maybe that's just part of my DNA. My dad was always like that. He was mm-hmm. always curious about what the 19-year-olds were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he used to have them on his show, I remember. Yeah. Uh, was I it- think I did to get that from him. I got a good, strong work ethic and the ability to be curious for your whole life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, let's go back and do some of that history because you're going to do a couple of covers for yeah, us. Yeah. Th- this song was on uh, the list, my album, The List, and on the original list my dad gave me. And it's, you know, it's just at the center of American roots music in my mind. Okay. This is Long Black Veil. Mm-hmm. 
Ten years ago On a cold, dark night There was someone killed Neath the town hall light There were few at the scene But they all did agree That the slayer who ran Looked a lot like me Judge said, son, what is your alibi? If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it meant my life, for I'd been in the arms of my best friend's wife. She walks these hills in a long black veil She visits my grave when the night winds wail Nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me The scaffold is high and eternity near She stood in the crowd and shed not a tear But sometimes at night when the cold wind moans in a long black she cries o'er my bones She walks these hills in a long black veil She visits my grave when the night winds wail Nobody knows, nobody sees Nobody knows but me Nobody knows Nobody sees Nobody knows but me with Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal after this. We're back with Roseanne Cash and John Leventhal. It's Long Black Veil, of course. Uh, many versions, your father's, Lefty Frizzell. The band did a wonderful version. Yep. I think Rick wonderful. Danko yeah. Yeah. been the singer on that. Just unbelievable. There are some songs that when you flip the sexes, when a, when a woman sings a song that's traditionally the narrator's a man, it can work. You, you can't flip this one. No, you can't work, flip it. And therein lies the beauty. You know, I love that old folk tradition of women singing about other women. 
women being narrators in a song and not changing the gender. You know, the Carter family did that quite a lot. And there pl- Gene Ritchie, there are plenty of other old folk songs where women didn't switch the gender. And is there a certain quality, you think, when a woman sings a, what's a man's part? Yeah, I mean, I think it, sure, it provides a different kind of angle or prism to look at it through. I mean, I, I guess that people will hear it as an, a narrator rather than me talking about, you know, it's almost like I come to, I'm Rod Serling or something and come to the front of the screen and present this story. <laughs> I, I like the gender uh, switch on this song a lot. It, it adds to the song in some ways to me. Yeah. And it was co-written by a woman. Yeah. Mary John Wilkins, yeah. Mary John Wilkins. Just an unbelievably great song. I mean, I call this song the humbler. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, you're a songwriter. Show me you can do something like this. Um, And we should go on to... Farewell, Angelina. Farewell, Angelina. Farewell, Angelina, the bells of the crown. Being stolen by bandits, I must follow the sound. Triangle tingles and the trumpets play slow. Oh, farewell, Angelina. The sky is on fire and I must go. There's no need for anger, there's no need for blame. Nothing to prove. Things still the same. Just a table stands empty by the edge of the sea. Means farewell, Angelina. The sky is trembling, and I must Bye. 
Machine guns are roaring, the puppets heave rocks. And fiends nail time bombs to the hands of the clocks. Call me any name you like, I will never deny it. But farewell, Angelina, the sky is erupting. I must go where it's quiet. Oh, farewell, Angelina, the sky is erupting. I must go. Tell me a little why you chose that song. Yeah, I mean, I just love that song. I love the tradition he borrowed from to write this song. I love how obtuse the lyrics are. Talk about mystery. Yeah, talk about yeah. mystery is right. And the melody's incredible. And then borrow. it's like all of this weird stuff going on in the verses, and then every time it comes back to Farewell, Angelina. I mean, Angelina is such a beautiful name. Saying farewell, you know, in some very old world sense of saying goodbye, it just works perfectly. And I don't know many writers who can get away with lyrics this obtuse. He he borrowed it from a Scottish song called Farewell Tarwathi, which was a sailor song, but he just took it, as Bob did in the previous first four or five years, and just... Exploded it. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it is one of those songs when I was listening to you, uh, it is full of these very sort of obtuse, difficult um, metaphors, I suppose. Um, but some of them seem to be, it, it's also a song that uh, there are times they seem very real. Yeah. Uh, the, the fiends nailing uh, bombs. Ta yeah. Um, Time bombs to the hands of the um, clock. You know, what's happening with the sky. It just, it seems to be a song that um, the kind of more outlandish images almost become concrete. Yeah. Uh, as time goes on. Yeah, I agree. And also it's very dreamlike. Like you could, you know, the 52 gypsies filing past the guards. There's something, it's like a, a film, you know, a, an abstract realism kind of film. You know, I did skip one verse, by the way. I hope Bob doesn't hear this and know that I skipped the verse about the pirates. Have you written a song? Have you had this song in your mind when you've written another song? Or if have you ever tried to create the kind of effect he creates here? Well, my use of, when I'm writing melodies, my use of minor chords just tends to this exactly. In fact, I would say overuse of that particular <laughs> Never heard A minor you don't love? Yeah. <laughs> right. There's never I, an A minor to F that she doesn't know. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, six he, minor to four chord. We, yeah, ar John, we argue about it. John cautions me against that. And I do love it so much. And he said, yes, all of humanity loves it, you know, but just back off a bit. It's... Uh, it, that's that's a podcast, yeah. Leventhal on uh, harmony and chord changes yeah. and sort of the diminution thereof of last 30 Okay, oh, well, not to get too serious about it, but this folk tradition of this use of minor chords is mm -hmm. very compelling to me, yeah. and I write well, and it me a too. lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I love uh, Bob's early chord changes and melodies and how he appropriated Scottish hymns and you know folk ballads and just would have a twist on them both harmonically and melodically that I just thought was just exceptional. Is that a particular gift to be able to hear a melody? Because, you know, I, I hear a lot of those old songs. I can't hear what other people are hearing. I can't hear the, what's modern and what would translate to something else. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure. You know, some people can take an old melody and say, if, if you turn it around and do this, and I'm like, I don't. Oh, oh. To yeah. me, the trappings of the song, the 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 original kind of arrangement, everything about it overwhelms my sense of you know what I could pull out of the song. Well, that does take a particular gift to reappropriate something that's mm -hmm. old. And I mean, the Carter family did it too, you know, yeah. A.P. Carter. Mm -hmm. Find those old uh, songs that were kind of part of an oral tradition that came from Scotland and Ireland and reinterpret them into Appalachian ballads. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do want to ask you, you joked earlier uh, about writing for True Detective that they wanted something dark and depressing, and that was right down your alley. <laughs> but you do, on this album, uh, it, it having listened to it a couple times, it is about age, it's frequently about dying, and seemingly impenetrable spaces between people, but it, there is a kind of spirit of optimism. I'm an optimist. I always have been. As dark as I can go, I'm still an optimist. If uh, walking into a nightmare, I'm still an optimist. I, n I just don't go to despair. Your, your heart's too big. Oh, that's very sweet. This is going to sound like an odd question. Does it make it easier to write about the tough things in relationships and the tough things about growing older when you're ultimately optimistic? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean... I have a thick skin and an open heart, and I um, I trust myself to go to some dark places and come back. Mm -hmm. And one reason I trust myself to come back is because of John Leventhal, because he's been a tremendous grounding force in my life. I think I probably would not have come back had I not met him. And because of our children, you mm -hmm. know, it's it's too selfish to stay in that place when you have kids. You have to come back. Um, you mentioned some political things have made you cry uh, for extended periods, but do you believe ultimately, I guess in in sort of personal relationships and political ones, you believe the long arc of history bends bends toward towards justice. Um. I have to say I felt incredibly discouraged in the last two years. Mm -hmm. And I do have optimism. I just don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, which makes me really sad. Yeah. I guess it is a long arc. It's a long arc. Um, so tell me now about um, the only thing worth fighting for. Um, I wrote the lyrics and T-Bone Burnett and Lyra Lynn wrote the music. T-Bone and I have been friends for 30 years, and he was music supervisor on True Detective. Mm -hmm. And he just called and said, would you write some lyrics for True Detective for this new season coming up? And I said, yeah, like what kind of songs? And he said, well, you know, songs that are about destruction and really dark and maybe a woman who has a lover who turns into a bird. And, you know, he kept going <laughs> on and on. I went, okay, that's my wheelhouse, sure. Yeah. 
and I sent him these lyrics and they wrote the music. But even these, there are two songs on the album I wrote for True Detective, and even those were not like commissioned pieces. They were not about characters. They were still me. Waking up is harder than it seems It's wandering through these empty rooms of dusty books and quiet dreams Pictures on the mantle Speak your name Softly like forgotten tunes Just outside the sound Broken Record is produced by Justin Richmond and Jason Gambrell, with help from Mia Lobel, Chiquita Pascal, Jacob Smith, Julia Barton, Jacob Weisberg, and of course, Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin. Special thanks to Eamon Drum and John Liebman of Bridge Studios in Brooklyn. 
To hear the songs featured in today's episode, check out brokenrecordpodcast.com. This show is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. I'm Bruce Headlam.